0: Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we look at our complicated relationship with technology and the challenge it poses to our experience of the symbolic life. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. time-saving devices, amongst which we must count easier means of communication and other conveniences, do not, paradoxically enough, save time, but merely cram our time so full that we have no time for anything. Hence the breathless haste superficiality, and nervous exhaustion, with all the concomitant symptoms craving for stimulation, impatience, irritability, vacillation, etc. Such a state may lead to all sorts of other things, but never to any increased culture of the mind and heart. Now, I would venture to guess that for most of us, in listening to this quote from Jung for the first time through, that there probably isn't anything too surprising in what he's expressing. We know all about this. We've heard countless times about the paradox of our time-saving devices giving us less time, and how our communication technologies, smartphones, email, text, social media, are a particularly egregious example of this. But what might be somewhat more surprising is that this statement of Jung's was written in 1941, some 80 years ago, well before any of our current communication technologies were even imaginable as anything other than science fiction. The problems that Jung identifies, breathless haste, superficiality, and nervous exhaustion, leading to increased craving for stimulation, impatience, irritability and vacillation sound like they could refer as much to this current moment in the world as they do to Jung's own time. And we might be tempted to imagine that the situation is exponentially worse today, given the astonishing proliferation of technologies since Jung wrote these words. But it's unlikely, however, that we could ever really have any exact measure of the relative severity between then and now of the symptoms that Jung describes. What we do know is that Jung was not alone in sounding the alarm. On things like this. A decade after this quote from Jung, Alan Watts wrote that what we had come to call our high standard of living was really a violent and complex stimulation of the senses that feeds our craving for distraction, a panorama, he called it, of sights, sounds, thrills and titillations into which as much as possible must be crowded in the shortest possible time. A little over ten years after that, the Canadian philosopher Marshall McLuhan suggested that our technologies are not just transmitters of content, but actually alter our patterns of perception. That is, they don't just change what we see and are able to see, but how we see it and how we think. And in the 1980s, the author and media theorist Neil Postman warned that we were amusing ourselves to death. Now, If you think I'm making an argument here about the evils of technology, I'm really not. The fact that I can record this podcast and upload it so that you can listen to it on your smartphone or smart speaker or however you access it is, of course, all thanks to technology to what Jung refers to as easier means of communication. And even calling this podcast Digital Jung is meant as both an acknowledgement of the fact that the digital age in which we are living is a reality that we cannot ignore or avoid, and at the same time a recognition that it presents potential difficulties and even dangers for the living of the symbolic life. And the issue here, as it is with most things regarding the symbolic life, is consciousness. The technological world in which we live is a major component of our physical, psychological, and spiritual environment. And it's crucial that we stay as conscious as we can of how this environment impacts our well-being. No medium is excessively dangerous, writes Neil Postman, if its users understand what its dangers are. So it's imperative that we question not only our technologies, but our use of them. And simply asking these questions, says Postman, can be enough to break whatever spell technology may have on us. And one of the things that we know that technology does is that it extends or amplifies Our natural human functioning. So, for example, glasses and telescopes extend the capacities of our eyes. Books and computers, among other effects, extend our memories. But this can work in both beneficial and detrimental ways. In a book called The Distracted Mind, Two researchers, Adam Gosley and Larry Rosen, note that distractibility is a fundamental vulnerability of our brain. Our brains, it turns out, have an inherent sensitivity to interference, which, they tell us, was not created by technology, but without question has been extended and amplified by technology. So what our current technological environment presents us with is not so much a new set of difficulties as it is a, a new urgency in relation to these difficulties. But the underlying problem, in many ways, is an age-old one. It is, we might say, an archetypal problem. And this is the problem of the mind and how we care for it. It's a problem that has been known and addressed by all the great religious traditions from time immemorial perhaps most completely and directly by the Buddhist tradition. And so here's a passage from the Dhammapada, one of the core scriptures of Buddhism that speaks directly to this problem. The Restless, Agitated Mind Hard to protect, hard to control. The sage makes straight as a fletcher the shaft of an arrow. Like a fish out of water, thrown on the dry ground, the mind thrashes about, trying to escape Mara's command. The mind, hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes. One does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. It's hard to protect the mind. On this, both Buddhism and Jungian psychology agree. Too easily, it becomes restless and agitated, and like an arrow that is bent out of shape, difficult to direct where we want it to go. The overstimulated mind is like a fish out of water, thrashing about because it's unable to breathe. And all of these things point to what we suggested earlier, that the quality of our environment affects the life of the mind. Like all living things, the mind, in its own way, must be able to breathe. Now for Jung, technology has its relationship to the human psyche because it's a product of the human psyche. And it's been part of our psychological environment ever since the harnessing of fire. The danger that it presents comes from the imbalance that results when our technologies cause us to be disconnected from our deeper instincts and from the creative workings of the mind. The disciplined mind, so says the Buddha, brings happiness. For Jung, the disciplined mind, the directed mind, the creative mind is crucial for the growth of culture. Our technologies, he says, may lead to all sorts of other things. He's not, in other words, denying its potential value. But because they also lead to breathless haste and superficiality, or as the Dhammapada puts it, to restlessness and agitation, they can never lead us to any increased culture of the mind and heart. Culture, of course, is the work of meaning, and it is as essential an element of our psychological and spiritual environment as the air we breathe. It is the air, so to speak, that the psyche breathes. Our technologies can do amazing things, but they cannot lead us to an experience of meaning. That is the domain of the mind and the heart. So I want to emphasize here two elements of culture that we can use as our takeaway. For all of this. And the first is that while the work of culture is creative work, it's not indiscriminate creativity. It's not just a production of novelties, which, writes Jung, produces only anti culture. So much of our fascination with technology is for the new and improved but this tends to cut us off from our deeper roots. Culture is that which connects us with the wisdom of the past and which seeks to further its growth in and through our work and our lives. The second element, I would contend, is perhaps the more important one, and that is that culture is born of reflection. And reflection, Jung points out, is not the same as thinking. Rather, it's an attitude with which we confront and experience the world. In the act of reflection, he says, we stop call something to mind, form a picture, and take up a relation to and come to terms with what we have seen. In other words, reflection transforms a stimulus into a psychological experience. Prior to this transformation, it was just a thing that happened. Now, It's something we can think about, question, imagine, and even try to communicate in some form or another. And according to Jung, it's the act of reflection that makes us human. He calls it a privilege born of human freedom because it frees us from being merely subject to acting unconsciously out of our instincts and impulses. But it's more than just this. The mere act of stopping to reflect, he says, is in itself a spiritual act. And this is because it lifts us up out of the stream of events and creates a space in which we can get a sense of the timeless, which is an important condition for the experience of the symbolic life, for the experience of the soul. The necessary conditions for reflection are adequate space and time. In both the physical and the psychological senses, we need what the Dhammapada calls a mind that isn't overflowing, as well as time that is not crammed so full that in the words of Jung, we have no time for anything. And our problem is not that we need to save time, but rather, in a sense, to transcend it, And if we're honest, so much of the way that we use our energy and our technology is not really to save time, but more often than not, to kill time. And that, when all is said and done, is the real danger as if you could kill time, said Henry David Thoreau, without injuring eternity. And so we read in the Dhammapada that there is nothing that can do as much good as one's own well-directed mind. And perhaps then, in safeguarding our mind, we're also safeguarding eternity. Which, of course, is another way of saying we're taking care of the soul. Until next time. you'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have questions about anything you heard in the episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter using the hashtag digital finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored in this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available now from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.